In 2018, Jen Drummond was involved in a car accident. Now, rescue workers couldn't imagine any scenario where she came out of it alive, but she did. That's when she realized you don't get to choose when you leave this life, but you sure can choose how you live it. Strengthened by this awareness, she set out to live a more authentic and adventurous way. Now, inspired to climb a mountain for her birthday, her son raised the stakes by suggesting Mount Everest. Now, not one to back down from a challenge, she accepted the pursuit. Now, during her training, her coach upped the ante and proposed that she go for a Guinness World Record and become the first woman to climb the seven second summits. Now, the pursuit matched her desire to live a life of significance, not just success. Now, she's also an international speaker and author and host of the Seek Your Next Summit podcast, whose focus on inspiring others to go beyond success to a life of significance. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our guest today, Jen Drummond, who has become the first female world record holder to climb the second highest summits on each of the seven continents and to inspire you to climb your own mountains. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hey, thank you for having me today. Well, I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this. I, I, I love the thought, and I say thought, of mountain climbing. And uh, I just love that type of pursuit to climb the highest peaks because I know it's not easy. But uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on achieving your world record feat. And so for all of the, the viewers and listeners out there, uh, what are the seven second summits? Yes. Okay. So the seven second summits is a mouthful is what they are. Um, it's the second highest point in each continent. So I'll go through each of those. Um, Ojos del Salado, which is located in Chile. You have Mount Kenya, which is the second highest point for Africa. You have Dick Tau, which is the second highest point for um, Europe. K2, second highest point for Asia. Mount Townsend, which is the second highest point for Australia. Mount Tyree, which is the second highest point in Antarctica. And then Mount Logan, which is the second highest point in North America, located in Canada. Now, you said um, you went to uh, Del Salado, which... Uh... It, that's in that's in Chile or Argentina? Chile. It's on the border, um, but it's in Chile. It's located in the Atacama Desert. It was the first one of the pursuits that I did because it was supposed to be one of the easier ones. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I've been to Chile and I've been down as far as Orsornos, which is like this little German town. And off in the distance, uh, we see this mountain. And is that the one that, in a way, in its look, uh, it kind of mimics Mount Fuji in Japan? Yeah, because it, so Ojos del Salado is a volcano, right? So right. you have this flat area all the way around it. And then you have this protruding volcano that is the mountain that we have to climb. Um, because it's located in the Atacama Desert, it is fascinating how much wind is on this mountain. It is probably one of the most windy experiences I've ever had in my life because there's nothing that holds the heat in at night. So all the heat dissipates. And then when the sun starts coming up, it starts heating the land again. And then that starts moving air. And so air just blows and blows and blows. You have to have um, containers 
at the different campsites because it has been known to rip so many tents. So then you don't always necessarily have to set up tents because you're going to sleep in this container, which I have now decided that if a container is on the side of the mountain, I'm not interested in climbing it. It is not like, it is going to be way too much torture for no reason. Well, see, I remember when we were down in Orsornos, Chile, and we looked off into the distance and it's, and it is a volcano. You are correct there. And it is so beautiful. And we were there in, I think uh, it was like January one year. Uh, okay. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, January in Chile is summertime. So it was like 108 degrees. But like you said, the nights get cold and there's nothing that retains heat down right. that, you know, because you're technically becoming at the very top of Patagonia in that right. region. And so it does get cold, but it's a very, very beautiful area. But I want to I want to take a step back. Um, what happened in 2018 with the car accident that almost took your life? Oh, yeah. Um, so I was driving down the highway and I had hit a light. So, or I had hit the light green. So I'm driving at a decent speed because I didn't have to slow down. There was a semi truck in front of me that was going up a hill that obviously hit the light. So he was going slower. I was coming on him fast. And so I went to pass him. And when I went to pass him, he like there was something on the side of the road so his little he had two trailers so that second trailer hit my passenger side headlamp and then i went flipping so i went end over end over end three times total then came sliding sideways to a stop in the median and i just remember thinking oh i'm gonna get hit by something else like hollywood has taught me that another car is coming um and the next thing I know, a guy is pulling down the windshield and he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? I don't even know if I'm okay at this point. Like, I'm not sure. I knew what just happened, but I'm kind of coming back into the pace of what just happened. And I'm hearing him and I'm afraid to look. Like, I don't want to look. I can see that my car is a disaster. This, the airbags went off, like everything happened. So I closed my eyes and I wiggled my fingers and toes and I could feel my fingers and toes. I'm like, I'm okay. I can feel my fingers and toes. Like, I'm okay. And he said, well, we have to leave you where you are until the ambulance comes because we don't know if something else is going on. So we're going to just have a conversation. So I started talking to this stranger and other strangers stopped and started collecting my gear that came out of the car. Uh, I went to the hospital and I checked out okay. The police called me a couple weeks later and they said, Jen, we have tried to rebuild this accident like 50 different times because it's actually an area that there's been a handful of them and they're trying to make it safer. And they said, we could not build one scenario where you lived, like not one and let alone walk away with basically no scratches. And I just like that, that just brought everything to life again. Like, why was I saved? Why didn't I die? Like, what is my purpose here? And that really sent me on this quest of 2019 of saying, okay, I'm here for a reason. What is that? Like, what is this life going to mean? If I would have had my obituary read on December 18, 2018, what would that have said? And what do I wish it would have said? And I kind of felt like everything from that point forward was this opportunity to write my obituary, have this amazing life that when it does actually happen, 
I have way more things on it that set my heart on fire than just these like check marks of what you're supposed to do in life. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, of like this, there's a small story when someone walked up to a tombstone and they see the, the born date and then they see the, the date of passing. Mm-hmm. And they stand there staring at it and they look at the dash and then they wonder, what does that dash actually hold? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and for you, you've climbed a lot of summits. Now, prior to the accident, have you ever climbed a mountain before? I mean, yes and no. So I had climbed in the Grand Tetons, right? So in Jackson Hole. And I did the grand with some friends. And I just remember that experience being just so magic and so all the wonderful things. So when I was going through my list of like, okay, what do I want to do with this one magic life? I started breaking my life into decades. I said, okay, here's things I could do in my 40s that are going to be harder to do in my 80s and blah, 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 blah. And so 2020, I was having my 40th birthday. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to do something really cool to launch this next decade. And then I thought, oh, I really enjoyed mountain climbing. I'm going to climb a big mountain for my 40th birthday, which was called Ama de Blom. It's a gorgeous mountain located in Nepal. Paramount Pictures uses it as their backdrop and their logo. So a lot of people are familiar with it. Still one of my most favorite climbs ever that I've done. But that, that was going to start my decade of the 40s. Well, I'm training for Ama de Blom and I'm a homeschool teacher, right? Because COVID happens and we all have to train our kids and all these other topics that we weren't planning on. And my son's complaining about his math homework. I'm like, listen, buddy, we do hard things. Like you've got this. And he looks at me and he goes, if we do hard things, why are you climbing some mountain called I'm a dumb blonde instead of a real mountain like Mount Everest? I said, okay, wait a minute, son. One, it's Ama de Blom. How many people have you been telling that I'm climbing a mountain called I'm a dumb blonde? Okay, not funny. Alma de Blom. And then I said, finish your math. We'll look at Everest. And we looked at Everest and I realized, you know, if Everest is this huge mountain in his world and we're capable of doing whatever we want with this life, I'll climb Everest and show him that his mom can and so can he. How much higher was Everest than the other mountain? Um... Maybe 7,000 feet ish. Yeah. So you're going basically, uh, well, 22,000 to 29. Right, 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 right. But I will say Amma de Blom's more technical than Everest. So Amma de Blom's a harder climb than Everest, depending on how well your body does with altitude. Uh, but to my son, he had never heard of it. So to him, Everest was a big deal. And so I went to climb Everest, which was an awesome experience. And Z, that that is what I've heard about, uh, you know, various mountains around the world. There are those that it's a great climb. And then there are those that are very technical. And of course, Mount Everest is no small feat. You know, if you make it to the top, great. You still got to make it on the way down. So you're not guaranteed to be bragging about it until you get back to base camp one. <laughs> Amen, my friend, a hundred percent. Because actually most of the deaths that happen on mountains happen on the descents. And so you really have to keep in mind like, okay, I'm not safe until I am off this mountain. 
And that, I mean, that's a mantra that you repeat continuously to just keep your mind in check and making sure that you're not getting lazy or being sloppy or being quick. Like you really need to be intentful on that downhill climb. Well, how, how long did you spend on researching every element and aspect of climbing Everest? Because there's, there's ice there, there can be uh, hurricane force winds, um, whiteouts, um, there can be avalanches. I mean, yeah. how, how, what did you, what, how did you prepare your mindset as you're researching every element before you actually did the climb? Because from what I've heard, you almost spend upwards to what, 60 to 90 days at base camp before you actually start moving up the yeah. ladder, so to speak. Yeah. So, it, I mean, everything's different and it, it, every person's different. So for me, I live in park city, Utah. So I live at elevation and I'm in those environments naturally for many months out of the year, which gives me a huge advantage when I go to Everest because you learn how to read snow. You learn how to be like, oh, that slope is stacked or that slope. Like we've been trained, my kids go to school and they're trained in avalanche awareness. If you go to school in Florida, you're not having avalanche awareness classes, right? So there is an advantage to where I live. There's also, I an advantage to being in the US, to be honest with you. I rented a tent that mimicked the lack of oxygen when I went overseas. So that allowed me to acclimatize at home versus acclimatizing on the side of the mountain. The advantage of acclimatizing at home is that you get to use a normal toilet, you have normal food, you're in your normal environment. When you have to spend more time at the mountain, your all those elements, all the different dietary things, all the different, I mean, it's just harder. So I got lucky and I got to come into Everest later than most other people that were climbing because I was seeing if I could acclimatize from home and how that would work for my body. And it worked fantastic. So yes, I was still gone for four weeks, but many times people are on that mountain, like you said, for months in advance, getting prepared. But those are a lot of times people who don't have climates that have snow, or you know, live at sea level and just have a lot more barriers to entry than what I did coming in, coming from a mountain town and coming from being able to try some of the different technologies out there that make time on the mountain less. Well. From a health aspect, um, which is really my background, uh, so let me ask you this, because you live in Park City, Utah, so you're at a much higher altitude, which mm -hmm. will definitely help lessen the time at Base Camp 1 at Everest. Um, that means your blood is more oxygenated than those that say, hey, I live in Florida, but I'm going to go climb climb Everest so they have to spend three months at base camp so your blood was very well oxygenated and which you actually need climbing Everest right so a lot of these mountains you have to do acclimatization rotations right so I think people who are not into mountaineering think oh you just go to the mountain and you just walk up it that I mean it would be awesome <laughs> but that is not the case and how it works so what happens is you go up to a point where your body starts to get so stressed that you're really tired, you're not making smart decisions, like you know, like you know when you're not getting enough oxygen, your body's giving you signals. So you go to the point where you're stressed, and then you sit there for a few minutes or an hour, or eat lunch or do whatever, and then you come back down to base camp. 
And the reason why you do that is because that stress causes your body to physiologically change and develop more red blood cells. So with those more red blood cells, it can operate in higher environments that have less oxygen. And so that's how you can like acclimatize to those environments. This applies to businesses that we're growing. It applies to families that we're raising, right? Like we get to these points of stress. We sit in the stress for a minute. We come back home, we get the lessons, and then we can go to that point again, probably better prepared, probably better in position to go forward. So when you climb Everest, it will take you a week to get up to base camp. And the reason why isn't the distance. The reason why is because you need to gently stress your body so that it can adjust to the oxygen requirement, like less oxygen requirements. Then when you get to base camp, then you'll go up to camp one, you'll come back down. You'll go up to camp two, maybe you'll sleep there a couple nights, you'll maybe touch camp three, go back to camp two, then you come back down to base camp. And then, so that all that is what your body's doing to prepare you to operate in these lesser oxygen environments. Then when the weather lines up and it says, okay, we have this window that's safe, that's going to take, takes about a week to safely climb Everest in a group um, type setting. So then you'll go up the mountain and you'll sleep at camp one and you'll sleep at camp two. You'll double check the weather to make sure nothing crazy's changed. You'll go to camp three. You'll go all the way up to camp four. From camp four, you'll summit, come back down, and then you try to get as low on the mountain as you can because the lower you are, the safer you are. So when we went for our summit push, we went from camp four to the summit all the way back down to camp two. And then, when you know, because it's a lot easier going down than it is going up. And then when we went from camp two, we went all the way down to base camp, and then we exited the mountain and the different methods that people did. Well, when you were at base camp four, how long did it take you to get through the death zone to hit the summit? So camp four is in the death zone, right? So you cannot live at camp four. So camp four, you are in the death zone. You are just resting your body because what's unique about Everest is that even though it's so high and it's snow covered and everything else during the day, there's so many surfaces out there that are reflecting the sun that that top layer can get melty or you can, it can feel like 80 degrees because you can have sun just pinging every different direction. Um, so the safest time to climb Everest is at night because at night the snow is set, the ice is set, everything's cold and hard. And so then you'll start climbing to summit Everest, like maybe depending on how fast or slow you are, 9 PM, 11 PM, 12 AM. And then you'll summit the next morning when the sun comes up, hopefully right around that time. And then you start heading down because during the day, when that heat starts to melt the snow or shift things, that's when avalanches are higher risk. That's when all that danger, like everything can shift and move. So you're always trying to work the mountain at the safest time. Wow. Well, when I saw your list of the seven second summits, there was one on that list that is considered probably the most technical on earth and probably if not the most dangerous, and that is K2. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many tries did it take you to get to the top of K2? Two. K2 took me two tries. Um, K2 is a technical monster. The interesting thing about the second summits is that they're all harder than the first seven. 
when most people don't think they think, oh, like Everest would be the harder. So the highest point on each continent would be the hardest. It's really not the case. Um, the second peak is a lot harder on every continent than the first one, just because of logistics, of how much information we have, of how many people climb the mountain. There's like a lot of variables that play into that. K2 is climbing a mountain and playing Frogger at the same time, okay? Because when you're moving up this mountain, it is throwing rocks at you the entire time. It just keeps shedding rocks. And they'll have these teeny tiny little stones that will go past your ears and go zoom, zoom. And you're sitting there thinking, what was that? And it's a rock. And those little rocks at that speed can cut your jacket, they can cut like through layers of jackets. You can have to get stitches because they randomly hit you on your body and weird spots. So in K2, you just have climbing sections. Everest for the most part is a, is a trek or a hike. There's very rare that you need to use your hands and your feet. Mainly you're just using your feet. On K2, you have a whole bunch of sections that you're actually climbing, which makes it technical and also hard because those are at high elevations. Yeah, you know, I have I've read stories about K2. I mean, just the thought of it. Even when I see pictures, I'm like, that is the scariest thing yeah. I could even imagine. And I've heard that about Everest, where it's like you said, it's a very major trek. And I right. think to me, when I when I look at the people who have climbed it and I look at the photos, I think the ice bridge is probably the scariest thing that I that I've seen on Everest. Yep. Uh, did you have to lay the ladder down and? use that as a bridge on Everest? Yeah, so the unique thing about Everest and Nepal in general is they have commercialized Everest to the nth degree, like, right? Which you respect, you know, I mean, there's pros and cons to both sides of that, but because they've done that, they actually have a team of climbers called the Icefall Doctors, and their only job is to manage that ice fall, which is the scariest, deadliest section of Everest, which is at the base. And that shifts every single day because of the weather and everything else. So that ice fall team will go through that ice fall and fix all the ropes, set all the ladders, check everything once in the morning and once in the evening. I went through the ice fall twice when I went to summit Everest. And so up, down is one, up, down is two. So four times really. Every single time I was in that ice fall, it was a different route because it shifts and changes that much. So if I was a normal climber that didn't have all the support that Everest provides, that would be a really hard climb to do. But how much assistance and support and teams that are responsible for different aspects of the mountain, it really helps minimize the risk and things like that that could normally be present. Well... I'm trying to remember if it was last year or the year before when the whole world saw the the famous photo of this line of people oh. standing to touch the summit on Everest. What went through your mind when you saw that? Yeah. And it know, was daylight. It was daylight, right? So you're sitting there thinking, okay, this better be a really good day on the mountain because these mountains are so tall that by two or three in the afternoon, many times they can generate their own little storm because of how like topography and the weather works and all that kind of stuff, they collect everything. So you're thinking, okay, this better be a fantastic day. They better have a lot of oxygen because that is taking a long time. And you wonder like, is it really worth it? 
So when we went to summit Everest, we were lucky. There was only 14 people that summited that day because we went so late in the season. And what's been interesting is I think back in the day, the climbing windows to summit were much smaller and tighter with global warming. They seem to be a little bit longer. So now you look at it and you say like, why would you go that day? If you know that many people are going wait a couple of days when it's safer for everybody. I mean, that was the problem with this past season. So this past year in 2023, they had a whole bunch of lines again, and they had a lot of deaths because of that. And so it's been, okay, guys, how many lessons do we need that we just need to take turns, be patient and let everybody have a chance on different days and not all try to be the first one of the season up to the top or the, there's a lot of records that people are always trying to accomplish, um, which I understand. Like I was chasing a record, but not at the expense of safety. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, and I've read the articles, a lot of people are saying Everest has, and like you said, it's a trekking mountain. Uh, It's still not easy, but a lot of the articles written are making it sound like it's almost like a breeze. And so the mountain is getting very, very crowded with people who want to claim that they've reached the summit. And, And I get that, you know, everybody has the dream to reach the top peak in life. And a lot of them will pick Everest for that. Um, and may, and maybe the way that these articles are written, um, is leading to too many deaths on the mountain because they think it's easy. Yeah. I do think there's been a lot of discussion about having prerequisites so that people have to have proven their worth and different things on different mountains. And you know, it's difficult because it's a global attraction. So you have people from all different walks of life, all different definitions of being prepared and all different levels of experience of, I mean, I went, when we went to Everest, they had an army team from another country training on Everest where 45 of these people had never seen snow before. And so you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, that's a lot of people on the mountain that have zero experience that, you know, it's, it's just, it's an interesting monster because who am I to say like you're capable or you're not, or you belong here or you don't, but there is definitely discussions about how do we make these environments safer now that they're becoming so much more popular. I got you. Well, here's what I want to ask you now, because for you, you've reached, you've, you're this world record holder. Uh, You've gained so much experience and insights to all of these different summits. Uh, what are some of the ways to help all of us seek our own sum- summits in life? Yeah. So here, like I didn't start out climbing mountains, right? Like that wasn't my goal in life, but my goal in life was to break limiting beliefs. And so I was like, I'm a mom. I have seven kids at home. I can't go climb this mountain. I can't go do this. And I realized I'm the only one who's saying I can't. Why don't I say I can? So I think it really like any mountain that we pursue first, you have to say like, what gets you excited? Like I got excited about the prospect of climbing mountains. My mother gets excited about decorating bookshelves. Okay. I do not get excited about decorating bookshelves, but she does. And so first you start leaning into what makes me excited and where am I happy and where do I find joy? And then once you start looking at that, you start questioning what beliefs you have of why I can't have more of this in my life. Like what's, what's preventing you from doing X, Y, or Z more. 
And then you, when you start questioning those things, then you start taking little steps towards it and let the doors open. I mean, I was climbing a mountain called Ama. Then it became Everest. And then it became the seven second summits that I didn't start with that goal. That goal evolved. And I think a lot of times we get feelings that we want to have or impact that we want to make. And then when we start taking steps towards those things, doors open, it looks a little bit different and things kind of evolve, but it starts with you. Then it starts with you shedding things that aren't serving you. Then it starts with you saying yes and putting action. And then it like doors open, like so many doors open. This journey turned into so much more magic because so many people were a part of it and they knew what I wanted to do and they had ways to add to it to make it even better. Well, see, ladies and gentlemen, you have got to be inspired. You've got to be motivated, encouraged with what Jen is saying. You know, Jen, the, the, the two things that popped into my head as you were speaking were, we need to start saying yes more yes. and saying that I can and never, ever, ever say I can't. Because like right. you said, the only person saying I can't is us. Nobody else around us is. Now, there are people around us that do say that you can't. I, I say leave those people. But <laughs> well, I say use that for fuel. They're like, oh, really? You think I can't? Let's play. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, okay, I'll show you. So use right. that, like you said, use it as fuel and use it as an advantage. Now, how can people overcome the spirit of fear in their life to finally living it? Oh, okay. So one, understand that you're going to have fear and everything that's new and not comfortable for you. And so you don't get rid of fear. You do things with fear. So I realized when I started this pursuit, as crazy as this sounds, I had a fear of heights. I had no idea that I had a fear of heights. I, I've been on skyscrapers. I've been on chairlifts. I've done all this kind of stuff. So I'm training for Mount Kenya, which is a rock climb. It's not a walk. It's a rock climb. You have to have a harness and rock shoes and all the different things. And so I'm like, okay, fine. We're going to go do this. So I get on the wall and then I am like maybe 12 feet off the ground. And I look down. I go white, my legs start shaking, I'm sweating profusely, I'm like swearing at my guide, like, what do I do? How do I get there? Like, oh my God, what is that? So I came back down and I was exhausted. Okay. I'm like, I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, all the things. And I said, oh my God, I can't believe I committed to this quest and I'm afraid of heights. Like, what are we going to do? And he goes, Jen, you're going to go up there and you're going to go one handhold higher. And then you're going to go. So I go up the wall and I just had to get one handhold higher. I'm still sweating. I'm still freaking out. I'm still all the things. And then I came back down and I recharge. Like I get drinks, I eat something. I'm like, okay, one more higher. So we go up and I get one handhold higher and we do this for like the entire session that day. And I realized that actually my fear was from eight, like 10 feet to about 30 feet. Once I got past 30 feet, it looked so far away that it no longer felt like as scary. And I, I, that lesson I like keep in my mind now, anytime I'm doing something, I'm like, well, man, what happens if I'm only scared for the next 10 feet? And once I'm past that 10 feet, that fear is no longer there. Or guess what? That fear is going to sit in the passenger side, not the driver's side of wherever we're going. I'm going to say like, yes, you're here, but we're still going. And you just have to, it's, it's not a dive into the deep end. 
it's a, Hey, let's like work with this and learn like, where does it get big? How does it feel? How do I manage it? And just starting to get curious and doing the teeniest, tiny little handhold next so that you can like come back to center and then go higher, come back to center and go higher. And eventually that ability carries into all areas of your life, not just the current pursuit that you're on. And ladies and gentlemen, you better put that in your memory bank. You better just play that over and over again. Take the small steps. Take a couple of steps back. Take three steps forward. Keep going back and forth. And eventually when you make your own summit in life, you did it. You accomplished it. But never chicken out on the first try. Do it. And, you know, because I love the fact, Jen, that you didn't tell yourself, I can't do this. You just backed off, you know, regained your composure, took a deep breath, uh, put the mindset back where it needed to go, and you tried again. It's almost, And in a way, it's the small version of Everest. You go to base yeah. camp one, you go to two, you come back to one. Then you go to, you go to two, go to three, you come back down. And eventually, you make it to the top. And, and yeah. that's what life's all about. So, ladies and gentlemen, never, ever, ever tell yourself that you can't and never, ever let anyone tell you that you can't. If someone says you can't, ignore those words. Do not let them stick. If you let them stick, you just walked into a cage with no lock on it and you're the only one that can open that door and walk right back out. And Jen, for you, I mean, what are some of the greatest things that your own kids have taught you? And uh, what do they think of their world record mom? Yes. Oh, it's so fun, right? So here's been the joy of them watching is they've been my little conscious, right? Like, am I making smart decisions because they're watching? And not only are they watching, but so is everybody else. And so it's made me more aware of the pursuit that I'm doing, because what you find out, whatever our summit is in life, you're not there for very long. Like when I climbed Everest, I'm at the top of Everest for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. If I did that climb for that summit, I just wasted a whole year of training and pursuit and practice and all the things that could have been a lot of fun. So it's really the kids have helped me really remember like joining the journey, right? The destination is just a couple seconds. They've really helped me remember that it doesn't matter what we do. It matters more how we do it. And so if you know that you're going to get to that summit, if you can walk into whatever goal you have and say like, I'm going to do this. I have the confidence going forward. Now, all of a sudden you get to play and the game becomes how much fun can I have on my pursuit? Or how much impact can I have on my pursuit? Or how many things can I make possible as I get to my goal and pave that path for others to move forward? So I really want everybody to just stop and say, okay, if this showed up in my life as a dream, a thought, an idea, or whatever, and you say, I want to do this, now the challenge is you're gonna do that, but now it's how do I have fun? How do I impact others? And how do I stay true to myself in this pursuit? And that's where the magic happens. And you're right. I mean, you hit the summit. You Maybe it's a 10, 15 minute um, stay. But the education, the knowledge is in the journey. 
Yeah. But at the same time, you bring it bring up one of the most important parts of all. Have fun in the journey. Because that's where that's where life is really truly learned. I mean, we're in the business of making the good old days right now, right? Like I keep telling myself, I'm writing my nursing home stories. So I better have a lot of them because I want to be like the fun lady that has friends, right? So I'm like, (laughs) we got to have stories to bring. And here's the thing. There's a section on Everest called the Lotse Face. It is basically a 4,000 foot ice stairmaster, okay? I mean, it is is the, the hard part of Everest because it's just nonstop and it's right there and blah, 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 blah. So I have heard other people talk about this section of the climb. So when we get there, party's like, oh my gosh, this is what they're talking about. And we knew we were going to finish that section. So now the joy, like then we're like, okay, well, how do we have fun? So we rotated, like who's telling jokes? We sang silly songs. We made up words to our own music. Like we had the best time. And when people say like, well, what was your favorite part of the climb? My favorite part of the climb was the load safe face. They're like, how? That's like the most miserable section in the whole like climb. I'm like, it is, but we had so much fun because we like paused and said, okay, how do we make this more fun? And our team, like I promise you, had the most fun going up that section out of any other teams on the mountain because we set that intention and then we carried it out. And I and I guess I uh, I would presume that. Uh... Um, singing the silly songs and having fun in one of the most dangerous parts of the mountain uh, pushed fear to the back. Does, right? Your brain doesn't multitask very well. So if fear starts showing up, you have the ability to push it into the back seat and figure out some other way to go forward. I love that. I love that. What wise words do you have for all of us uh, today? I want you to listen to yourself, seek your summit, build a team around you that's supportive and make the most out of this one magic life. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, head over to jendrummond.com, join her community and start living a life of significance. Uh, Again, Jen, congratulations on setting the world record by climbing the seven second summits, ladies and gentlemen, that's seven continents, okay, across the globe. And uh, like Jen said, the, it's the second seven that are really harder than the, the top seven. And uh, so again, Jen, I'm impressed. I'm in awe and uh, keep climbing those mountains. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for watching. Again, head over to jendrummond.com. Join her community. She has challenges on there. She has things for leadership. She has things for parenting, how to recover and recharge. Join in because I can tell you one thing. You're going to be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and who knows, you may be the next one that climbs Everest or K2 or whatever you want to do in life. You can do it. So, Jen will say it, I will say it. You can do it. So I want to thank you for watching. And as for me, I'll see you next time.